Well, today we're going to take uh, another look in our series called Balance, where we look at the four main ways we theologically reflect in the United Methodist Church. So yes, it's a little bit of a teaching series, but we also thought it was appropriate as we begin a new year for many of us to understand what we do and why we do it and what's the idea behind it. So today we're going to be looking at tradition. Last week was scripture as one of our theological lenses that we look through. Today is going to be tradition, all right? So the passage is going to be from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. So you can follow along in your own personal Bible or read it on the screens there as I read it aloud. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. But we must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit, and through belief in the truth. For this purpose He called you through our gospel, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite stories I like to tell about traditions is the story that I heard about the white buffalo when I was on a mission trip. How many of you have heard the story of the white buffalo before? Ah, how many of you have seen a white buffalo before? I've seen only a picture of one and then a taxidermied one, and that's it. They're very, very rare, okay? Very, very rare. But I was on a mission trip with our youth many years ago in South Dakota... And we were working on the Native American reservation lands there. And part of our work uh, was to help uh, repair homes, to do a VBS for the kids there, and just to help out in the community. And so the youth and I would work really hard during the day. And then at nighttime, after supper, the group that we partnered with for this mission trip would take us out into the reservation to learn a little bit more about their culture, their community, why they are struggling with poverty and all of these issues to give you a real-life uh, viewpoint of what's going on on the reservations in our country and how they need the church's help. Well, one of the nights, we went to go visit a storyteller, like a real-life Native American storyteller, which is a treat, okay? Really cool treat. And he was very educated. He was the math teacher for the high school at the reservation, he had uh, farmland and a barn, had animals, he had buffalo, and there is a video floating around out there when I was dared to feed the buffalo, and I fed the buffalo, but that wasn't the part of the dare it was. It was on, it, there was a fence separating us, but they dared me to feed the buffalo with my mouth, and so I put the piece of beef jerky in my mouth and fed the buffalo, and there's a video of it, all right? So that was the place I was at. When I heard the story of the white buffalo by the storyteller, he, after we got to see the animals and the buffalo, he took us to the barn, sat us down. That's where I saw the taxidermied uh, baby white buffalo that didn't live very long. But then he told us the story and why it was important for the Native Americans uh, for the white buffalo to be a part of their culture. The white buffalo, whenever there is one, and it happens like once in a few hundred years, that's that rare. But whenever there is a white buffalo that is born on the reservation, 
then one of the nature gods are supposed to bless the tribe that you're supposed to be a sign of blessing and fertility and good times. Okay, it's, it's a sign of that in their culture, all right? And so this individual, though, was telling the story about the white buffalo and the history of the white buffalo. And then he told the story of when there was one born when he was in his 20s, so a young adult, and that he actually saw the white buffalo. And it was on the reservation. Everybody was uh, in all the white buffalo. They revered it. But then the buffalo got let out and started running away. And as it did and got off the reservation, he would tell the story of the police and the communities that were around the reservation were dispatched for the white buffalo. And they ended up shooting and killing the white buffalo, devastating the reservation and the community there. That something so special to them was now taken. And so the story kind of came about, and he finished the story. And as he was telling the story, every comment, every if there was a joke in the story or whatever, his kids were there with us watching Dad tell the story to this youth group. And they, they were rolling their eyes at their dad when he would tell a joke or make a comment. And I looked over at the kids and said, why are you, why are you doing that? And they're like, we've heard this story told the exact same way our entire lives to every group that comes in here, every joke, every comment. He does not deviate from it, and we're just, you know, we're teenagers, and we're just tired of it, basically. And the dad overheard the conversation, and he said, that's exactly right, kids. This story was told to me that way, and was told to my dad that way, and was told by his dad to him that way. And so the tradition of the story the white buffalo was passed down and then if there ever was a new white buffalo it was added to that story and continued to pass down through the oral storytelling of the white buffalo is the neatest thing but he is telling the story exactly the same way that generations and generations and generations have told the story and hopefully one day his kids will pick up the art and tell that story exactly the same way their dad did, to all the groups that come to the reservation to help out. But that's part of tradition of doing something that has been going on a very long time, okay? But it's not just meaningless, though. Traditions tell a story of who you are. Traditions are things in our families, as Sam talked about in the kids' moment. You know, a lot of our kids think of traditions in times of holidays, Right? We all have our holiday traditions. I've got my running list that I've got to do for Christmas. And y'all have heard my little running list. And if I don't do it, Christmas ain't happening, right? We have our traditions. Our Easter traditions, our Thanksgiving traditions, our birthday traditions. We do traditions because it reminds us of who we are. And also it focuses and centers us as well. It helps us, especially if you had a rough year. Sometimes going to those traditions is comforting, reassuring. Traditions are important. But yet, traditions are not just things that we have in life in general, but we also have traditions in church. We have traditions that have gone on for generations and generations in our church that we're going to talk about. And then we also hope that the generations after us follow with those traditions as well. And so with our series today, we are focusing on traditions. Let's take a look at this passage, though, 
this passage is coming from 2 Thessalonians, and there's a key part of this passage that I really want us uh, to hone in on. Uh, first, Paul starts out in this passage by giving thanks. And Paul's that way. He, he does a really good, sometimes what I've heard, a southern sandwich, where he says something really nice on the front end, then he hits you with a zinger in the middle, then he comes up at the end with something nice again and kind of sandwiches it in the middle. So he starts off usually giving encouragement for his believers, and he gives thanks in these first few verses where he says, But we must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through the belief in the truth. And for this purpose, he's called you through our gospel so that we obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's giving thanks. He's giving thanks to the Lord God for uh, these individuals. He's giving thanks for these individuals being the first fruits of the salvation through sanctification. And so he's giving a lot of well wishes and calling everybody back to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And because of Jesus Christ, we are the fruits of the salvation. That we have the ability to obtain uh, glory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes into, so then brothers and sisters, stand firm. This is the key part. Stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. And so there you have it. He's telling them to hold firm to their traditions that have been instructed to them. Traditions of the faith. Because you got to remember, a lot of times these individuals are living in uh, Roman towns influenced by society, and then also if they're coming from the Jewish faith, they have the Jewish religious leaders kind of criticizing them for following this Jesus Christ and this group of disciples. So here Paul's reminding them to hold true to the traditions that are being taught to them by Paul and by the other apostles. And so today in the church, we still hold true to some of these traditions. Let me give you an example, Okay. So, John Wesley, some of y'all may have heard of John Wesley. You hear a lot about John Wesley if you're in a United Methodist Church because he is the major theologian that we base a lot of our beliefs from his sermons and his instructions and teachings and, and what he has done. John Wesley was active in the 1700s. He was a priest of the Church of England and also has been served as a missionary and a pastor here in the colonies. This is during British rule. In Georgia, funny story about him, he actually uh, kind of liked a girl in Georgia. I think it was the governor's daughter. And she broke up with him and broke his heart. And she found a new guy. And the new guy and the girl came to get communion at John Wesley's church. And as you know, the Method in the Church of England and Methodist churches is real big to give communion to everybody. He refused communion to his ex-girlfriend and the new boyfriend. So guess what? He got reappointed back to England. He got back on the boat and got reappointed because of that. Funny little story about John Wesley. But John Wesley is the, uh, the priest of the Church of England, the theologian that we base the, our beliefs on. And in the 1700s, as you know with history, the United States of America broke apart, fought a war, broke away from England. So there would be no more churches of England in the United States. They had to leave. Well, John Wesley had a movement called Methodism that started at Oxford College. And it was a group of people from the Church of England that had a method and real intentional on their study of Scripture, of having small groups and holding each other accountable. And John Wesley was real big on preaching 
where the common folk were. So people weren't coming to church because they were working, working in the mines, working in the fields, working wherever. So he would go to them and preach outside of the church, which was very radical in that day and age. And so when the Church of England was no longer allowed in the United States, but he had all of these people from his Methodist movement in the United States, well, he decided to ordain two superintendents, Thomas Cook and Francis Asbury, to be the superintendents of Methodist Church, Episcopal Church in the United States. And you had a new church formed from that. And from that point, Coke and Asbury would go out and they would lay hands on and ordain other ordained ministers and local pastors in these churches. And that's kind of where the Methodist movement got started in the Methodist denomination in the United States. Well, today, even today, when we ordain our elders and our deacons, and they go through that process of all the learning they have to do and all the checks and everything, and they're fully ordained, they go to annual conference and they have hands laid on them by the bishop and they are commissioned and ordained for ministry, just like Thomas Cook and Francis Asbury were. And then you can trace that tradition. Every ordained pastor has a list of who ordained the bishop that ordained them, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. And the list of names connects everybody to John Wesley. So every ordained minister has a, a lineage of tradition from them to John Wesley on ordination. And then there's a list of John Wesley from being a priest in the Church of England on who ordained him all the way through back into time. The laying on of hands has been a thing that we have done since the beginning with the apostles. And that's the reason why I told you this very long little history story of the Methodist Church. Because we hold firm to traditions, even in the way that we ordain our priests and our pastors, is the same way that John Wesley did and that how he was and we trace it back to the apostles. Tradition. In a moment, at the end of this service, we will have the individuals that are going on that mission trip I mentioned earlier in the service to Honduras. Those that are present, we're going to have them come forward. And we're going to reach out our hands and bless and pray for them as they go out as missionaries. Because that's the tradition. That's what we do as we go out. And John Wesley was really big. He was really big on the what's called the uh, early church, the first 500 years of Christianity, because those years were the closest to Jesus. He always felt that we needed to get back to those traditions and view our faith through those traditions. You know, even in our worship service, we do some things that are part of tradition, even though this is a contemporary service, okay? And I always like to lift up the things that we do that are traditional and go back to our traditions. But there's another reason that I want to lift this up. But first, you'll see that we have colors on the walls. Okay, We have color on the cross. We have color on the altar table. Why do we do that? It goes back to our liturgical traditions. And there's seasons of the church that we observe. And each season has a color, which we're in ordinary time or kingdom time, which is green. But if you're in Lent, it goes to purple. If you're on Communion Sundays, it goes to white. If you're in Advent, it goes to purple. Pentecost is red. So we follow those traditions and liturgical traditions through the colors of worship. So even though this is not a traditional sanctuary that we have across the narthex, 
you still have that tradition of observing the liturgical seasons in this service. All right? One big thing with tradition is creeds. Creeds is your statement of faith, but a lot of the creeds that we say, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, a lot of those go way back to the early church. And we say that to connect ourselves to the early church. Now, in the sanctuary, they'll have them in the back of the hymnal and they'll read a different creed or whatever on a Sunday. Well, what about here? Where do we do our creeds? You just did. You did them through the songs that we sang at the beginning of the service. Because what you're doing when you're singing these words is that you are affirming your faith and what you believe through these musicians and through the songs and the singing. Those are your creeds. Stained glass windows have been a part of a church for a long time. They're beautiful. We've got some in the sanctuary that are real nice. There's a stained glass red cross behind me that's part of the history of the church here. But besides the one right behind me in a contemporary service, you don't have stained glass windows in the way that you think they traditionally are. But what does a stained glass window do? What was their purpose? The intended purpose was to tell a story because not everybody could read back in the day. But yet, if you see a John the Baptist with Jesus getting baptized and a dove image going down to him, it's telling you the story of baptism of Jesus or Jesus on the cross or an empty tomb. They tell stories, okay? When you see the stained glass windows in the sanctuary, it tells a different story of Jesus' ministry. And we have a little, actual little uh, key for those stained glass windows on the wall in the narthex that tells you about each. But in the contemporary service, your projector screens tell your story. Those are your stained glass windows. So even in a contemporary service, you have elements of tradition. So I tell you this is because traditions on the surface may look different at times. But in their the core, they're the same. Because you have to be careful when you look at traditions. You can get into this notion of traditions or traditionalism. okay? And traditionalism... Is something that you do just because, oh, we've always done it, but I don't know why. Or I don't know where I can trace it back to or whatever. Okay, But we're not giving that up. That's traditionalism. Traditions you can actually trace back to the early church and see why we did that. There's a reason behind it. It connects us to the past, connects us to the future. And as I said, with your traditions in your family, all right, when you have those traditions, it anchors you. It tells you who you are. Just as in church, it tells the world and us who we are when we hold on to those traditions and we view our faith through the lens of tradition. And so it's important for us to know those. It's important to know where they come from and how they influence us. Now, in a Protestant church as ours, we do have other influences from other theologians that we will look at and bring in. But what this does also, it it solidifies that we are part of the priesthood of all believers. That the church is bigger than just St. Matthew's. It is worldwide from the beginning of time to the future. And it's important for us to know that and know our connection in all of that. So when we look at scripture and tradition, we begin to understand what makes us United Methodist and makes us John Wesley's students or the theologian John Wesley and how he influences what we do today. And so may we, as we go forward 
in our week, may we look at these traditions. Think about these traditions and what we do in the church. If you have a question on why we do something, this is a great opportunity to ask. Ask me, ask Andy, ask Beth, ask someone on the staff. Have a conversation. I will say Andy is teaching also a class on Wednesday nights called Adult Confirmation from 6 to 7 in the sanctuary that goes deeper into these topics of tradition, scripture, reason, experience. Those are the other two that are coming up here. And so may we go through our week looking at these traditions in our church. May we reflect upon them. May they show us who we are. May they teach us to help us to show the world who we are. And that is a church that is open to everybody, that is following the commandment of loving God and loving others and leaving the door open for those who are curious to learn more about who we are. Let us pray.